BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80 live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. On this episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly... SI senior writer Michael Rosenberg reads his essay on how authoritarian regimes like China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia use sports for their political benefit. And later, you probably have a coffee fanatic in your life. You might even be that fanatic. But whether or not you drink coffee, you're probably not nearly as into it as Jimmy Butler. SI staffer Rohan Nodkarni tells us just how much the Heat star really loves coffee. But first, our conversation with best-selling author Michael Lewis some 20 years after he began the reporting on Moneyball. It's April 20th. I'm your host, John Gonzalez. From Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio, this is Sports Illustrated Weekly. You're not going to bring in one, but three defective players to replace Jim. What I'm You're not buying into this Bill James bullshit, are you? This is the new direction of the Oakland A's. We are card counters at the blackjack table. We're going to turn the odds on the casino. It's been two decades since Michael Lewis started the reporting that would lead to his best-selling book, Moneyball. Lewis joins me to discuss the reception and pushback he got from sports executives back then, 
how analytics have taken over sports as a result, and why the man at the center of Moneyball isn't as thrilled as you might think with the revolution he helped create. Michael Lewis, welcome to Sports Illustrated Weekly. That's an honor to be here. Honor to have you. It has been, as we were discussing before the show, 20 years since you called up Billy Bean and started working on Moneyball. And I would imagine that you knew about Bill James ahead of time. You figured that this would make a perfect intersection for your book. Tell us about Bill James and how you found him and why you wanted to write about his particular area of expertise. So actually, I'd never heard of Bill James uh, when I called up Billy Bean. I called up Billy Bean because I really had the question, like, how are you winning games if you have no money? Like, why isn't this market more efficient? Like, if the Yankees have four times more money than you, they should buy all the best players and just beat you all the time. I just didn't understand the answer to that question. And when I got to him, he was the one who told me about Bill James and his existence. And in fact, he had all of Bill James' early abstracts on his bookshelf. And when he'd come out of being a player, he'd been introduced by Sandy Alderson, now runs Mets, I think, Mm -hmm. to the work of Bill James and the idea of kind of rethinking baseball from the ground up. So that's how I discovered Bill James. And Bill James got me through Moneyball. He was the, the intellectual heart of the thing. He was this guy who, well before he had a personal computer, well before there was a data geek, anything anybody was even thinking about data, he was cutting box scores out of newspapers and trying to assemble, you know, better <laughs> statistics for baseball players and was kind of rethinking the game and started self-publishing this book in what, 1977, I think it was called the abstract and you had to mail him a check and he would staple together his mimeograph copy and send it back out. And it's really an interesting moment in intellectual history because you have this, this thing, baseball, it's been played the same way forever. And you've got these baseball experts, supposedly, who are running the teams. Yeah. And then you've got this guy, he's actually in a, he was guarding a Stokely Van Camp's pork and bean factory at night, <laughs> working on this thing in, in the middle of Kansas, questioning things like, is the stolen base worth it? Or does the runner steal off the pitcher or the catcher? Or is this guy's batting statistics actually more valuable than this guy's batting statistics? Or where do runs come from? And he was ignored by the inside forever, 15 years. And the inside kept running itself the way it always ran itself until the wall fell down. And his insights in the hands of the next generation, data geeks with computers, end up overrunning the game. So he he was the intellectual heart of Moneyball. But when I wrote the book, I was interested in what he had written, mm-hmm. but I didn't really dig too deeply into him personally. And when I came back to this pod, this season of the podcast of Against the Rules is about experts, I did think that like this was an important moment in the history of experts when the person who who was the expert wasn't the person who played the game, who had the experience of the thing. It was this intellectual who was thinking about it from the outside. Yeah. And I want to go back and find, just talk to him about how it had happened in the first place. So that's how he walks into the podcast. But in many ways, he's more interesting than the people came, that came after him. He sees the world in a messier way than the data geeks who now run the sports world. And he is somewhat ambivalent about the revolution that he that he created. Yeah, I'm really interested in that part. And, you know, it's amazing to me first, just as a journalist that, you know, you call up Billy Bean and you talk to him and he goes, oh yeah, you should talk to this guy, Bill James, because how fortuitous, like that's 
what we all dream about. You had him, as you mentioned, on your podcast against the rules. And he said to you that he once looked at a baseball diamond and what he saw was a field of ignorance. And he was talking about baseball, but he could have been talking about football or soccer or basketball. And that kind of language, that kind of, I look at this in a different way than the way that you look at this because you're not really thinking about it, I would imagine creates some enemies for him, no? Yes, though he's a hard person to dislike because his basic pose is, I don't know. You don't know Mm -hmm. either, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. That I'm open to the possibility there are things I don't know. There's a deep humility about him, even though it feels like an arrogance to come at the game that you didn't ever play and tell everybody that how they're thinking about it is wrong. He was identifying logical inconsistencies, but always open to the possibility that like he's not right. He's not sure. The movement he created, oh my God, it was a war. When the book came out, there's only, I think, one other book in my career that triggered a firestorm the way Moneyball triggered a firestorm. And that was Flash Boys. And that was because Flash Boys was trying to take billions of dollars away from Wall Street people. Mm-hmm. And you don't take money away from Wall Street people without a huge fight. But Moneyball, I didn't completely anticipate this, being the kind of the vehicle for popularizing Bill James type thinking. And, and it was effectively saying to the rest of baseball that these guys kind of know what they're doing and you kind of don't because they're actually paying attention to this thinking that's been going on outside the game for the last 15 years, deeply offended a lot of people in baseball. I mean, I I can remember when the book came out, there was a emergency meeting of baseball scouts in New Orleans devoted to the book and how they were going to argue back against the book because their jobs were at risk and they weren't wrong. I mean, there really was a a changing of the guard. And the people, the big thing that happened, and the only reason the book kind of gained real traction in the game, I think, is that my reader base before that, a lot of Wall Street people read read Liar's Poker. Mm -hmm. And this thing landed in the laps of either the kind of people who own baseball teams or the kind of people who were friends and financial advisors of the people who own baseball teams. And I know there were several cases where someone handed an owner the book and said, your guys who are running your team are wasting your money. Read this. And it was at the owner level where they came down into the organization and said, what are you doing? This makes total sense. And what these guys in Oakland are doing makes total sense. And I want to do that. I don't want to do whatever you've been doing. It doesn't make any sense. And um, that infuriated the management class in baseball. And there was... uh, it was a war. I mean, it, because the management class and the scouting class, they're the sources for sports journalists. I mean, their friends are the daily baseball writers. Sure. So the baseball writers w- were, by extension, not terribly happy. And there was this other thing, there was other undercurrent of the response. When I first went in to see Billy Bean and I said, asked him this question, how are you competing? Like, what's going on here? If the market's efficient, you should not be able to win. He said, well, the market's not efficient. And he said, no one's asked me the question you just asked me. And I spend my life thinking in those terms, like a Wall Street trader, like how do I find value? How do I measure the value of the players? I'm spending all my time thinking about money and the value of the players. But sports journalism isn't all that interested in the subject. So there was this feeling that there was this wonderful material that had gone neglected by traditional sports journalists 
And it was offensive that this person who was an outsider walked in and sort of plucked the material. So there was, I got some grief for that reason, but it did trigger this war. And the war was, the battle lines was the, you know, it was a little overstated, but on the one hand, you had these data geeks with computers who never mm-hmm. played the game. And on the other hand, you had the former minor leaguer who had thought that he was working his way up through the scouting department to being an assistant GM to hoping to run a team one day. And those two people did not always see eye to eye. Okay. People who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. Baseball thinking is medieval. They are asking all the wrong questions. And if I say it to anybody, I'm, I'm ostracized. I'm, I'm, I'm a leper, so... On your podcast, when you had Bill James on, you guys had this great exchange that perfectly framed that where you said to him, people running baseball at the time weren't thinking. And Bill James replied, well, why weren't they thinking? Because they thought they knew, right? Which was just, I thought that was so perfect. And now 20 years on, math has won out, Michael. I mean, the math is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. But that war that you mentioned is still being, even though it's been fought and won by the people who have adopted and embraced the math, there's still that stuck dug in recalcitrant faction that think that they can still fight and win this war, even though the war is over. And it's that jocks and nerds culture war line. Like you have the inside the NBA guys, right? Like Shaq and Charles Barkley, Shaq saying that there needs to be more post-ups or Charles Barkley saying things like jump shooting teams can't win the NBA title back before the Golden State Warriors did it, which makes them look like what they are. Like they haven't paid attention to this movement, but I'm wondering what you and also Bill James thinks about this, that we've got this era of sports now that is hyper-reliant on the numbers. It's gone very much the other way. way. Yeah. In a way that really irritates Bill James, I think. Because <laughs> of because, course it does. Because, well, partly because, I mean, it irritated him back in the day. He walks away from his self-published book after it's exploded and become a real published best-selling phenomenon in the mid-80s yeah. uh, or late-80s because he said people were fetishizing the numbers. The numbers were never the point. The point was understanding. And people started throwing around numbers without a whole lot of meaning attached. And you see, you know, you do hear now announcers. It's just like a blizzard of numbers and some of them mean something and some of them don't. And it's like numbers are the smart way to talk about sports and that's not necessarily true. So James himself, he says, it's kind of funny, in his last book, his last abstract, he writes a long letter to the reader that basically says, I hate you. I'm stopping (laughs) writing this book because I found increasingly that I don't like my readers and the letters I'm getting causing me to dislike you even more. So I don't want to write for you anymore. And what he was objecting to was people thinking that he had all the answers and they had all the answers when really what he had was questions. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to preserve the space of uncertainty of like, you know, let's figure more stuff out. And he felt like he was increasingly surrounded by kind of smart asses who thought they knew everything. And so he's not a really good example of one side of this war. And in fact, when he goes to work, he ends up being hired by the Boston Red Sox after the Boston Red Sox geekify themselves. And he finds the people he gets along with the most naturally are the scouts, the old scouts. And it took him a while to figure out why that was. But part of it was that he, he sensed the, a lot of the old scouts knew they didn't know. 
they themselves had a kind of humility about them because they'd made, they had so many examples of like they betting on a guy and he didn't work out or missing yeah. a guy who did work out. But the current state of things is curious because before, when the experts were the people who played, were insiders, mm-hmm. the wall they created between themselves and the rest of the world, the outsiders, was you never played. Yeah. The wall that the insiders create now is you're not smart. It's more complicated than you would understand. And the wall is sort of offensive. Um, there was a war. The math people won. There's still these holdouts. But the holdouts are, in baseball, they're not a lot of holdouts. They're right. not a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, the dad. But they, people will say that they've made the game boring. And that's not a false charge. But they're not a lot of people on TV who go on TV and say that, teams would be better off if they just got rid of all this sophisticated data analysis. Yeah, you're right. The holdouts tend to be sort of the older players who did play, who still rely on that. I played, you didn't, I know you don't, which is comical now. And, you know, I, I would guess an aging section of fans of different sports. I'm wondering when you started writing this book, if you ever thought we'd get to this spot where not only did the math went out, but it's so radically altered not just baseball, but basketball. I mean, basketball now is you're getting to the rim or you're shooting threes and everything in between is verboten. So I'm wondering if you expected it to go to this kind of extreme. I thought the book was going to have a different effect. I thought the book was going to cause people to rethink how they valued people. And in some places it did. I wasn't really thinking of like, oh, this is going to have a big effect on baseball. I guess I did think that look, this is so obviously a superior way to run a baseball team that sure. other people are certainly going to adopt it. But I didn't follow through through to its natural conclusion where that would lead the game and then it would slow down the game and make it a game of strikeouts, walks, and home runs. And, and it's not necessarily true that the geekification, the intellectualization, or the smarter playing of the games is necessarily more boring. True in baseball. It just turns out the efficient strategy, given the game, is a duller strategy. Basketball, I think, is much more exciting because people figured out the value of the three-porch shot. I mean, it's just a much more fun game to watch. Mid-range jumpers are sort of the most boring thing (laughs) on the court. And and football, it's led to the opening up of the game, you know, the passing game over the running game. The passing game is much more fun to watch. So it it isn't that the intellectuals necessarily make the game more boring. It's just in baseball, it so happens that is true. But I know the answer to your question is I did not see coming great changes in the way the game was played, especially. I did find myself wondering what the frontiers were, mm-hmm. because way back then, the, it was all, I mean, it was pretty rudimentary stuff. They were like, people thought RBIs were a really valuable statistic, right, and yeah. people weren't paying attention to on-base percentage, and that kind of stuff. I did wonder, once the inefficiency got beaten out of the game, by if everybody was kind of doing what the Oakland A's were doing, where an Oakland A's-like outfit would get an edge. And still find myself wondering a bit, because I was wondering, I didn't, the only guilty sensation I felt when I was writing the book was, after I published this, Billy Bean's done. That after I publish this, he's no longer (laughs) going to have an edge. Where is he going to find the edge? So anyway, the answer is I didn't really see the game changing the way it's changed. I was also struck in your conversation with Bill James when you guys were talking about, I mean, again, he's one of the godfathers of this movement. And yet there are considerable parts of it that he does not like where you had brought up to him different statistics like war wins above replacement. And he's not on board with that particular stat. And 
I'm wondering if this is, you know, Frankenstein looking at his monster and wondering, what have I done? I think there is a little bit of that. I think there's a little bit of that. And there's a little bit of another thing. And the other thing is where all this comes from. Why you're a college graduate. Why are you not getting a job or proper job that you could get that pays you a living wage? Why are you guarding pork and beans at night and Mm -hmm. trying to write about baseball? (laughs) He's pretty clear about the psychological origins of his obsession with it. And it really is an obsession. His mother died when he was four. His father was badly injured in an accident. He, he was basically kind of orphaned and left to fend for himself with an older sister who was just a couple of years older. He was pretty socially isolated. He felt like he just had this sister and they were together all the time and they were each other's other half. And he felt a need to control and understand the world because the world seemed senseless to him. And he turned to baseball as a environment that was simple enough that you could completely understand it and make sense of it. So that's the the original impulse that gets him into kind of making a new kind of sense of this old game. And I think what bothers him is not just like the individual statistics or the quantification of everything, though those things do bother him. I think the real thing that bothers him is the sense that the false sense that other people have that in this environment has been fully understood and there's nothing left there, that it's been deforested. Mm. Because I think he gets a great deal of solace just from the exercise of making new sense of the thing. Yeah. And he's decided, you know, it's really a curious predisposition, a personality trait that up until the age of, I don't know, 40, he's really interested in almost nothing but baseball. Everything he's done in his life is directed towards making more sense of baseball. And the idea that sort of like, all right, people with spreadsheets of, and advanced abilities to analyze data have come through and completely eliminated the mystery and the, the ability to order this world further, I think leaves him cold. He doesn't like it. So you do find he's this revolutionary who doesn't really like the revolution he created, which is not that unusual a thing. No. Uh, revolutionaries often don't like what the revolution creates. Not unusual, still fascinating though. And that's why I was curious when I had asked you about the blowback for him and we had spent some time talking about the culture war and the jocks versus nerds component. I'm also interested though in any potential blowback for you because you did help literally author this movement, right? And so I'm wondering what kind of feedback you've got in the last 20 years since you called up Billy Bean the first time and he put you onto this story that has become this phenomenon. You know, it was pretty funny in the beginning because (laughs) sports people generally don't really acknowledge the existence of the author. Their relationship to books is usually, oh, that's a Charles Barkley's memoir. Uh, that, 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 that they, <laughs> yeah. they, they assume that the book is basically the point of view. Someone else, if there's a, someone putting the words on the page, they're not significant. It's the, it's the significant thing is the sports figure who it's about. Right. So in the be- very beginning, for a while, I had this lovely situation where all the people in baseball who were pissed about the book assumed Billy Bean had basically written it. And so they were pissed at him. So Billy got directly most of the, I wasn't worth attacking. I was this gnat from this other world, right? So I was not an obvious target, except for from a couple of journalists, but from the people in baseball, they were like angry at Billy. And 
I am eternally grateful that Billy Bean did not throw me under the bus because he really could have. He could have just said like, I didn't have any control over that. The guy didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't say any of that. He could have said that. Sure. Uh, he didn't say anything like that. And so he took the heat. So I didn't get it directly. What I got instead was really gratifying. I got essentially a hall pass to wander around, which I still have, to wander around professional sports and ask people questions. Because people who weren't immediately threatened were interested in the thing. So it led to, I mean, it led to the blind side. Mm-hmm. It led to long pieces about basketball. It will still lead to other things. I'm thinking about doing something on Indian cricket now. So it's given me a pass to go and learn about other sports and people will take the time with me to teach me because they were interested in the book. And I got very little in the way of obnoxious blowback from insiders directed at me personally. It's been 20 years since you talked to Billy Bean about this. It was a remarkable book. Then it continues to have an impact on sports at large. Two decades later, always read him and listen to him and check out his podcast on experts called Against the Rules. He leads the league in podcast guests above replacement, Michael Lewis. Thank you for this. Thanks for having me. After a break, how sports are often used for political benefit. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. 
This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. When the Winter Olympics were recently held in Beijing, a lot of people spoke out against the oppressive Chinese government's human rights abuses. We did an entire segment about it on this very show. And when the World Cup is held in Qatar later this year, you'll hear the same sentiments expressed about that government's terrible violations. But despite the vocal opposition to certain authoritarian regimes, sports events are still held in those countries, which is exactly what those governments want in the first place sports can be manipulated for their political benefit. And that's nothing new either. Here's SI senior writer Michael Rosenberg with his essay on sports washing. Sports washing is everywhere, but it's not new. Regimes have been using sports to burnish their images or distract from their problematic behavior for centuries. Competitive sports are built on the concept of fair play, which helps explain why so many oppressive regimes see value in games. Any form of good, wholesome fun can seem like it is presented by good, wholesome people, even when the facts say otherwise. China, with its appalling human rights record in opposition to an independent Taiwan, hosted the recent Winter Olympics with the strategically peaceful slogan, Together for a Shared Future. One of the stars of those games was Eileen Gu, a California-born skier who chose to compete for her mother's homeland of China implicitly embracing the government of China rather than the United States, whether or not that was her intent. Gu declined to say whether she renounced her U.S. citizenship to gain a Chinese passport, as Chinese law requires. But she did gush about, quote, the ability of sport to bridge the gap and to be a force for unity. That was music to the ears of the Chinese government and to those of the Saudi government as well. Saudi Arabia has long attempted to lure star golfers to events there with large financial guarantees, using the players and sports to present a benign image of the country. And they've succeeded. Two-time Masters champion Bubba Watson recently praised their efforts to support women's golf, completely ignoring the fact that, until last summer, women needed permission from a male guardian to live alone. The Saudis, to use Phil Mickelson's words, are scary to get involved with. Yet he is involved anyway. Mickelson, the famous golfer, has spearheaded the Saudi-funded effort to create a world golf tour for the game's elite, a much larger effort to cleanse the country's image. Most disturbing is that Mickelson knows exactly why and how he is being used. Sports washing, Mickelson called it, in an interview with writer Alan Shipnick of the Fire Pit Collective for Shipnick's upcoming book, Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. 
Sports washing. Sports washing. Sports washing. Sports washing. Is the use of sports to present a sanitized, friendlier version of a political regime or operation. Mickelson later apologized for using words that did not reflect, quote, his true feelings. But that apology was just another form of sports washing. He should think people funding the new tour are scary because they are. They are determined to succeed, too. They just announced a 2022 schedule that includes events in the United States. The term sports washing is relatively new, but the practice is almost as old as sports. Paul Christensen, a professor of ancient Greek history at Dartmouth, says it goes all the way back to the original Olympics. Christensen tells this story. There's a long war between Athens and Sparta, and Athens looks like it's getting its ass handed to it. They're getting the crap beaten out of them, and everyone thinks they're down and out. And so an Athenian politician named Alcibiades comes to the Olympic Games in 416 BCE, right in the middle of the war, when things are going bad for Athens. And Alcibiades enters several chariot teams into the four-horse chariot race and wins first, second, and either third or fourth place. And that's like an F1 racing team. It was insanely expensive. And they all said to him at home, you're crazy. We don't have those kinds of resources. And he's like, listen, everyone thought we were down and out. I win all these events at Olympia. And now everyone in the Greek world thinks that we're just fine. And they're terrified of us. It was a straight up geopolitical maneuver. Modern sports washing can take many forms. Qatar wants the world to see it as the host of the 2022 Men's World Cup, not a country where migrant workers are exploited, including for that competition. Thousands of workers have died over the last decade building the World Cup infrastructure. Former Chinese Communist Party leader Mao Zedong once banned golf, calling it, quote, a sport for millionaires. But the game has since become both legal and popular in China leading to propaganda that golf was actually invented there instead of in Scotland. If you were to listen to the Chinese Communist Party, you'd believe that everything that happens in China started in China and belongs to China. If you think that kind of silly nationalistic fable would never fly in the U.S., I have two words for you. Abner Doubleday. Millions of American kids have grown up believing Doubleday invented baseball a myth that was created a century ago to distance the national pastime from its foreign antecedents, cricket and rounders. It's a proven fact that the game now designated baseball is of modern and purely American origin, insisted one of the game's first power brokers, Albert G. Spaulding, in his 1911 book, America's National Game. There is a hint of sports washing every time a U.S. president throws out a first pitch or a college president talks about football as the, quote, front porch of a university. Sports seem like they aren't political, which is precisely why they are so often used for political purposes. The drama seduces us, and our passions distract us, and so we swallow whatever government officials feed us without even realizing it. After Russia invaded Ukraine, the International Olympic Committee and FIFA moved to ban both Russia and its ally, Belarus, from competition. That might not seem like much of a penalty for Russia's atrocities in Ukraine, but don't think of it as a punishment. 
Think of it as taking away a weapon. Russian President Vladimir Putin has long used sports to shape Russia's image as both powerful and reasonable. Shortly after delivering a famously blistering anti-West speech in Munich in 2007, Putin successfully lobbied the IOC to award the 2014 Winter Olympics to Sochi, a one-two punch that made Russia seem like it and its leaders' views belonged on the world stage. Russia kept using sports to look strong, instituting a state-sponsored doping program to increase the country's medal count, and friendly. Putin opened the 2018 Men's World Cup by welcoming spectators and journalists to, quote, open, hospitable, friendly Russia. Earlier this year, Putin attended the 2022 Winter Olympics opening ceremony and appeared to fake falling asleep as the Ukrainian delegation entered the stadium. Then, Putin invaded Ukraine shortly after the Games ended. The modern Olympics, like the ancient ones, have often been a political tool. When Nazi Germany hosted the 1936 Summer Olympics, it saw the event as a pep rally for the Aryan race. The game's slogan was, quote, I call the youth of the world. Adolf Hitler built the Olympiastadion in Berlin, which supposedly seated 100,000 people, and the Nazis paid for propagandist filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl to make a documentary about the Olympics. The Nazis also took down signs banning Jews from public places in an effort to seem, well, open, hospitable, and friendly. People take sports super seriously, Christensen says. And as soon as people do that, you can leverage it for geopolitical purposes. My students are like, everyone's too cynical for it to work now. Of course it works. It always works. In some ways, it works better now because you're so bombarded by it all the time that you can't escape from it. A PR tactic that has been successful for more than 2,000 years is probably not going away anytime soon. But sports fans and journalists can at least call sports washing what it is. And athletes should show some self-respect when tyrants come calling. There are plenty of ways to host games without being part of such a dirty one. That was Michael Rosenberg reading his piece, Sports Washing is Everywhere, But It's Not New. We'll link to it in our show notes. After a break, we tell you just how much Jimmy Butler really loves coffee. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I love coffee. I make a pot first thing in the morning after walking the dogs, and then I drink another cup for a mid-afternoon pick-me-up. There's hardly a day that goes by that I don't have some. But as much as I love coffee, I'm not consumed by it. At least not to the same degree as Heat star Jimmy Butler. During the bubble playoffs, Butler turned his obsession with coffee into a side hustle that's grown into a pretty impressive business. SI staffer Rohan Nodkarni joins me to explain how Butler drinks an outrageous amount of coffee every day and how that side hustle began by him overcharging his NBA peers. All right, Rohan, when I saw this story, I couldn't wait to read it. It was fun. It was unexpected. It was dumb in ways that I also loved. Uh, How did you come up with this idea? So... I have developed somewhat of a relationship with people close to Jimmy Butler. And for the longest time, they're like, you know, Jimmy wants to do coffee stuff. Jimmy always wants to do coffee stuff. They frankly don't really like if I pitch something really basketball heavy to them. This was just a perfect confluence of events. Jimmy Butler was doing a coffee pop-up at the Miami Open in Miami. I got invited to go, but I was Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, so I missed it. And I was really bummed. They were like, do you still want to talk to Jimmy about coffee? I'd been talking about 
To me, it's fun to do an interview that's just really narrow as opposed to broad in scope. I don't want to ask him about, oh, like, tell me about how you feel about the Heat's chances this year. What's he going to say? You know, I wanted to do something that was really narrow in scope. And and it just happened that he loves talking about coffee. He really wanted to talk about this pop-up. And I was like, I'm going to get all the coffee questions that I've been wanting to ask him off my chest. This thing really mushroomed for him, right? I mean, because it's one thing to love coffee and it's another to become known outside of basketball for coffee where you're doing this pop-up at the Miami Open and, you know, you've got your own brand of coffee. Give us the backstory, the origin story for Jimmy's coffee career. Yeah, I think as many people know, and if you don't, it kind of started when he was in the NBA bubble. His trainer, actually, I asked him, I was like, when did you first get into coffee? Uh, His trainer suggested it to him as something that could maybe help performance-wise, and I think that piqued Jimmy's interest. You know, even before the bubble, he's someone who would love to travel. And he told me my favorite thing to do when traveling, go to local coffee shops, talk to baristas, talk to people there. I just go in there to learn. We just got really, really, really good people trying to make the best coffee that there is. I want to support everybody. I think he genuinely enjoys talking to strangers in, in coffee shops, as kind of goofy as that sounds. When he got to the bubble, there weren't good coffee options. He started brewing it himself selling it for a lot of money. You know, big face money comes from the idea that he was going to collect big bills for $100 bills, right? Big face coffee is the name of his coffee company. Correct, correct. One of the things I love in your story is when you say that he was going to collect big face money, he was basically price gouging his captive audience, right? His captive Absolutely. clients. Yes, he. I mean, he knows what their per diems are. He knows what everyone's <laughs> contracts is. Like, yeah, when he was in the bubble, it was absolutely a price gouging scheme. Um, I believe the small, medium, and large sizes all cost twenty dollars. Uh, no matter the drink, it costs twenty dollars. <laughs> I interviewed Jimmy Butler coming right out of the bubble. Even then, he was like, I've been working on my latte art all summer. He's like, I wish I could take a year off just to open up a coffee shop. Like, th- this has been something that's been in his mind for years. Are you a coffee aficionado? Because I love coffee. I don't know if I'd say full-blown aficionado because there's definitely people who are more knowledgeable than me. I love coffee. I I probably even love learning about coffee even more so than drinking it. Like I will have a cup of cold brew a day, but I love learning how to make different espresso drinks. I've been considering buying an espresso machine. So I was, I think I was knowledgeable enough that I could go back and forth with Jimmy on it a bit. All right. So you're conversant in coffee. You're talking to him about this. I'm curious about the beans that he uses. Where does he get them? What kind of selection is he going through? I would imagine that that's an extensive process for him. I mean, so he's selling beans now. He's, in fact, a coffee bean purveyor. And if you go on, I don't want to plug it, but honestly, if you go on bigfacecoffee.com, which I've been curious, his beans are expensive. I I think it's up to $70 for a a five-ounce can of beans. I mean, we're talking single origin stuff. It's clear, you know, he's sourcing things from Brazil, South America. I asked his trainer what Jimmy's favorite coffee beat is. He mentioned Brazil. I mean, another reason he loves Brazil is because of his good buddy, Neymar. And so he's grown to like Brazilian coffee as well, but he's definitely very serious about sourcing his beans. I assume that SI will let us expense that. So we're going <laughs> to just go ahead and order some I, of that $70 I, coffee. Yeah. It's research. It's important. Can I perform like Jimmy Butler if I drink his coffee? There's only one way to find out. Right, we're going to find out. But I'm I'm curious as well. So he he starts this in the bubble. You know, he's charging his teammates and and other people exorbitant amounts and it blows up into Big Face Coffee Company. And I'm wondering did he expect his side hustle to get this big to the point where as you said he's charging $70 for tiny cans of coffee beans. 
You know, that's actually a really good question, John, because there's a fine line between commitment to the bit and passion, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy Butler is incredible at kind of straddling that line, in my opinion, where, you know, when I'm interviewing him about coffee, like he just he just like keeps folding in jokes and it's just kind of keeping you off balance. He told me about his, his morning coffee routine. He mentioned he doesn't make any coffee for his daughter, but he's like, but I am trying to find a way to get coffee to kids. If it's at home, the first thing we do when we wake up is uh, have coffee with whoever else is up in the household. Besides my daughter, she can't have coffee. She's only two. (laughs) But we're finding out a way to bring coffee to kids as well. Um, (laughs) And it's just entirely too much coffee throughout the day if I'm at home, just because that's what we really like to do. You know, I asked him about if he likes other coffee flavored things. He's like, I love everything coffee flavored. I want coffee colored shoelaces. I think coffee, anything is great. Coffee colored clothing, coffee colored shoelaces, coffee flavored (laughs) dog food, whatever the case may be, coffee is just phenomenal every way you can get it. I think that there's a part of him that's just kind of thinks it's funny, maybe how big this can get. But I also think he has a, a very genuine passion for coffee. He's leaning into it. I love that about Jimmy Butler. I I also love something that you tweeted in conjunction with your story, where you said that after learning about Jimmy Butler's coffee intake, you were worried about Jimmy Butler's coffee intake. So tell us about his daily coffee routine. Okay, this was like humbling because, you know, I've been told, oh, he drinks seven to 10 cups a day. And I'm like, that's not even possible. Like, how does he find the time (laughs) to do that? And he laid it out all for me, step by step. If I'm on the road, I always um, go have breakfast with my physical performance guy named Armando. Um, We'll have breakfast, we'll have coffee over breakfast, and then immediately after breakfast, um, we go sit down and just talk about life over a cup of coffee at some coffee shop, wherever we're at. And then I'll go back to the room. I have my big face travel kit. I'll make a cup there, have lunch, team meeting, come back another cup, yada, 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 do something else. And then um, me and Armando leave early for the game. We'll go get some food and then we'll have another cup and we'll find another cafe to to go grab coffee to go and then go hoop. The two things we know about Jimmy Butler, he likes to wake up really early in the morning for his workouts and he drinks a ton of coffee. I kind of like wanted to very lightly suggest to him like, hey man, have you thought about sleeping nine hours a day? Maybe that would be really good for your performance as well. He also claims, I need to text his trainer and get the exact quote. He was like, I don't want to butcher it, so I'm not going to tell it to you, but my trainer is some kind of wordplay and he's like, coffee doesn't actually wake you up. I don't know about the science behind that. that that's what he's claiming. So apparently he's able to sleep well, but his coffee intake is, is off the charts. Yeah, you mentioned nap and sleep, and you say he sleeps well. How much does he sleep? So I think during the season, he's actually getting a decent amount of sleep. It sounds to me like he probably takes a nap. I don't think he does the early morning workouts as often during the season. So I think he's getting an appropriate amount of sleep. I also think that the Heat's sports science team probably has something to say about how much sleep he should get. So I think during the season, it does seem like a normal amount. I just want to know how. I want to know physically how. He told me he's able to fall asleep five minutes after his head hits the pillow. I just don't know how he does. Jimmy Butler is famously intense. 
And he got into an argument this season that we all saw with his teammate, Udonis Haslam, and his coach, Eric Spolstra. And I'm wondering, are we sure that he needs extra caffeine? Listen, immediately after the story came out, people were like, hey, there must have been the caffeine rage. Um, <laughs> he's in deep now, too. I mean, he, he told me he doesn't remember the last time he didn't have a cup of coffee. I think he's had a cup of at least one cup of coffee every single day for at least three or four years now, if not longer. I mean, I think a lot of people understand that level of dependence, but I don't know that he needs it because of how intense he is, but I know that that he can't do without it at this point. He can't do it without it. And you asked him about that and whether or not he could kick the caffeine habit and stop drinking coffee. And he gave you a very Jimmy reply. Could I do it? Yes. Do I want to do it? No. Do I want to try to do it? No. Do I think about doing it? No. But could I do it? Yes. But I'm not. So we can skip that one. He, he was like, he was ready to get past that question for sure. Yeah. I could totally stop drinking if I wanted to, but I don't want to. Exactly. Um, yeah. He also told you that what he loves most about coffee is the conversation he has with people over coffee. And you asked him, I thought, a fantastic question, nicely done by you and your reporting instincts, about his dream coffee shop hang. This, to me, was a very good example of just how eclectic this man is. Like I said, commitment to the bit at all times just leaves you wondering what this man's true intentions were. But I believe he told me the three people he'd like to coffee with are Neymar. I would pick Neymar. I'm a huge fan of Neymar. I would pick Barack Obama. Obama. I think he was just like, I want Obama. Yeah, I got to have Barack in there. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, I mean, hard to argue with. Yeah. And then lastly, Emma Raducanu, who is the uh, the tennis prodigy who was at the Miami Open. And I believe he was like just, he was behind the you know bench, so to speak, whipping up coffees. I think she was there. He was making coffees for her, other players at the tournament. So... Yeah, an odd mix that I think is representative of just how goofy this man is. How many cups of coffee did you have before this interview? I think I had not had my coffee yet during the interview. I think I was like excited to go get it and so excited to go tell Jimmy Butler at the coffee I got that I just somehow got too worked up and forgot. And it was kind of sad because I wanted to be like, hey, I'm drinking this right now. And I remember regretting I didn't have that moment. Well, now you and I are going to have to go get coffee. You're on my dream coffee shop hang. Oh, there we go. Ron, this was precisely the pickup we needed. How delightful. Thank you for this. Thank you so much. I Listen, I've been waiting to get my call up on SI Weekly. Okay, this is it. This is the big leagues. Uh, this is it for me. So thank you so much for having me on. You can read Rohan's piece about Jimmy Butler and his coffee obsession on SI.com. We'll link to it in our show notes. Sports Illustrated Weekly is a production of Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. And for more of Sports Illustrated's best stories and podcasts, visit SI.com. This episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly was produced by Cooper McKim, Jessica Yarmosky, and Isaac Lee, who is also our sound engineer. Our senior producer is Dan Bloom. Our executive producers are Scott Brody and me, John Gonzalez. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. Thanks for listening. And if you've stuck around this long, we leave you with this. Put me on a little bit. What should I be doing at home so I can be drinking coffee like Jimmy Buck? Um, first of all, you should pay me to come make your coffee. Let's get that out the way. I can do that for you. Um, the ratio that I like to use is um, 16 to 1. But it's different for everybody. So whatever floats your boat, wherever makes you happy, I just know 
For a million dollars a second, I will come and make your make your coffee. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places.